what I feel like I'm on assignment to, to preach or to teach or however it comes out, however God chooses to do it, um, hit me really, really hard. And I think that the, the music that we played and the songs that we sang, I don't know, it just, it hit me in, in such a way because if you were listening to the words and worshiping along as we were singing these songs, the first three songs were so powerful because they're about like what God can do for us. They were about how he sets us free, how chains break in his presence, how he brings us into his family. And then that last song, the only thing we can really give to God is our gratitude. That's it. All, we don't have anything that we can add to God. We don't have any gift, any money, any possessions that we could ever give him. All we can do is stand here and just say thank you. Thank you for adopting us into your family, God. That's what I want to talk about today is being adopted. We're going to go to Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. And we're going to start with a story. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 say, After that, he went out and looked at a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began following him. Let's just pray one more time that God would say what he wants to say and do what he wants to do today. Father, we come to you with humility. We come to you, Jesus, with a thankful heart today because those of us who have heard that call to follow you and have answered, we know that you've done miracles, you've done mighty things in our life, Jesus. And we're so thankful. We come to you with our thanks and with our gratitude today because that's all we really have, Jesus. We're just so thankful and we're so grateful that you've chosen to call us, God. Lord, I just pray that your word would go forth and that it would do exactly what you want it to do. I pray that you would touch every one of our hearts, whether we've been in church for a long time or whether this is our first time ever hearing about Jesus. I pray that you minister to every person here, God. Let us feel your presence. Let us see you in a new light. I pray that you would help us to understand your word, to understand that we have been adopted or pulled out of the world and been adopted into the family of God. Jesus, we're so thankful and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Oh, I told you I was going to cry. I knew it. I could feel it. But you know what is so cool about a relationship with God is that it's not a stoic or static relationship, that it is very dynamic. And oftentimes we feel certain emotions or we we hear the voice of God when we're praying or when we're reading the word, something just stands out to us. And I'm so thankful that we have a God that's like that. I'm so thankful that we have a God that lets us feel him. Now, I know our relationship is not 100% predicated on feelings, but man, if, if our emotions don't get involved, I, just, I, I don't know. Because sometimes you just sit in God's presence and just want to cry. I don't know. Sometimes you want to laugh. Sometimes you want to smiles. So I, I, there's just something so dynamic about a relationship with God. And in Luke chapter 5, we read about one of the disciples, a man named Levi. That was his Greek name. 
but his, his Hebrew name was Matthew. And if you know, so his story, you almost have to read between the lines a little bit because the Bible doesn't share a whole lot about Matthew's life other than that he was a tax collector. But if you know anything about history around this time, the people of Israel were under Roman rule and the taxes that he was collecting were not taxes for the Israelites, they were taxes for the Romans. What that means then, and you can see this from other clips of the Bible with other tax collectors like Zacchaeus, we talked about him on Wednesday, people didn't like them very much. Really, not at all. Who likes tax collectors today? Are there even tax, the IRS, I guess. Sorry, I won't, we won't do that. But I, just a little joke, okay? But tax collectors back in that time had a reputation for being corrupt people. And the Romans turned a blind eye to this as long as they got their due. So a lot of times what would happen is the Romans would pick people from the nations that they had conquered. And these people would, would barter for a contract with Rome. And whoever paid the biggest sum or whoever promised to collect the most taxes would get that contract. And what the Romans would do is they would allow the, these tax collectors to collect however much money they wanted as long as they paid their share to the Roman government. So this led to a lot of corruption because if, we'll just use today's dollars, if they were supposed to collect you know, $10,000 in that month, a lot of tax collectors would collect 15 and keep the five and give the 10 to the Romans. So there was a lot of corruption. And because of that, tax collectors were really, really not liked. So when you apply that lens to Matthew, this man was a Jew, but he was a Jew without a people. He, he was a, Jew, a Jewish man by birth, but disowned by his nation. Nobody wanted to spend time with him. No, no Jewish person that hated the Roman government wanted to spend time with Matthew. No one wanted to be around him, and he was used and abused by the Romans. They only kept him around because of the money that he made them. So this man was Jewish by birth, but had no people. He had no family. Has anybody here ever seen the show The Chosen? I'm trying to look. Okay. Now, I really like the way they depict Matthew because they show this dynamic. They show a Matthew that was disowned by his actual birth family. They show a Matthew who really didn't have anybody. And even in the show, the only thing that he befriended was a dog because nobody wanted to be around him. I don't know if that's biblical, but, but I think it gets the point across that it's trying to. People did not like this man. And he was alone Lonely, he had all the money, all the wealth that he could ever want. But he didn't have what really mattered. He didn't have a community. He didn't have a family. So when we see Matthew sitting at, if you're reading King James, it says the receipt of custom, which is the booth that the Jewish people have to walk by and pay their taxes. And they're all mad at Matthew for collecting all this money and they're throwing money in the basket or whatever they did. But while he was on the job, he sees somebody. Somebody that I assume he had never seen before. And this man who was with 
just a small group at that time, walks by the receipt of custom or walks by the booth where Matthew was sitting. And the Bible says that this man looked at Matthew. I imagine what Matthew was feeling in that time. Somebody actually making eye contact with him. What do you think Matthew was feeling when Jesus looked at him? It's an interesting question. The, the Bible doesn't really tell us what was going on in his heart or in his head other than when Jesus said, follow me, he got up and followed him. But can you imagine that? Being lonely and isolated as a human being and somebody walks by and looks you in the eye. Probably with a smile. I don't know what Jesus was doing. But he said, follow me. When Jesus said, follow me, we have to understand that that was an invitation into a family. That was an invitation into a community that Matthew didn't have. When Jesus looked him square in the eye and said, follow me, Matthew understood right then and there that his life was about to be changed. He was about to have a group of people that although they had their differences and the dynamics and the disciples was wild at times, but he finally had someone he finally had people that wanted to be around him, that wanted to spend time with him. He finally had a purpose that went beyond just collecting money for the Roman government. Now he had a community that he could be a part of, something, a piece that was missing for a long, long time in his life. Now finally that missing piece was found in one man, in Jesus. You know, that that when Matthew heard that, that call to follow me, the Bible says that he left everything in that moment and got up and followed Jesus. But he was so excited about what he had just found that he threw a party and he invited all of these wealthy people and all the people that he did know, maybe other tax collectors, maybe other, you know, whatever, like corrupt rich people, I don't know. The Bible says they were publicans and the Pharisees didn't like the publicans. But he threw this party because Matthew had just found what he had been looking for his entire life. He found community and he found love and he found a family that he could finally be a part of. So excited he throws a party. But you know this command, Jesus was choosing a disciple right here, but this invitation I should rephrase it to an invitation. This invitation is still echoing in every one of our ears today. Because Revelation chapter three and verse 20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And if you read in the back of your Bible, that's in red. That means that's Jesus speaking. So Jesus gives out this call. Even today, it echoes in our ears, follow me. In Revelation 3.20, we just read it, but, but I want you to take notice. I think I mentioned this maybe last time I was up here, but I want you to take notice of the invitation that Jesus was giving. The invitation was one of community because he says, I will commune with him. I will dine with him. I will spend time with him. Whoever answers the call, 
finds a community in Jesus. Because it's not God's will that we live our lives alone and isolated on our own island. That's not what God desired. God deals with our loneliness. So I want to encourage anybody, if you are feeling lonely or maybe you're missing community or love, I want to tell you that the answer today is Jesus. And Jesus is still saying, follow me. He's still knocking at the door of your heart. If you just open it, if you just answer the call, you'll find exactly what you're looking for because Jesus handles our loneliness and he replaces it with community and with love. But you know this thought, this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see this, this theme of community and adoption and bringing into a new family. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul actually identifies that that's God's plan that it's God's plan to have a family. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as, pay attention to this phrase right here, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us to, what word? Adoption. As sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption is an interesting word. And Paul uses it several times. We're going to examine it a few times in a few different letters that he writes. But adoption is an interesting word because the way that we understand adoption is that it literally means a, a parent or, or parents legally choose to bring someone who was not born in their family into their family and raise them as their own. Do we all agree that that's a good definition of adoption? But Paul uses this word and this thought of adoption to reveal our relationship with our father, with our heavenly father. And what it means by implication is that we can leave behind the things of this world. We can leave behind what we thought our identity was based in the world. We can leave behind past regrets and past sins. We can leave behind chains that come from maybe the things we've done in our past. We can leave all of that behind. And what Jesus does, he provides an invitation for every single one of us to walk out of darkness. That means the world and our past and the enemy and all of that stuff. We can walk out of darkness and into his light which means that we can be born again into a heavenly family. We can be born again into the family of God. And that means that we get a new identity. We get a new life. Chains break when that happens. Past sins get covered in the blood when that happens. We get a new start and a new beginning in the family of God. What a powerful message. Because Paul is saying that we were born in the world. And our identity was tied to things of the world. But when you're born of the Spirit, you can leave all of that behind. And you can walk in newness of life. You can be adopted. The powerful thing here, I actually had a chance to preach this message uh, yesterday at work. Because <laughs> I was working on my notes at my computer. 
And somebody walked by, one of, one of my coworkers, they walked by and they're like, what are you working on? And I was like, well, just some notes for Sunday. And they said, well, what are you talking about? So I shared with them about adoption and how that, how that works like in the Bible. And they said, tell me more. I wanna know how to be a child of God. Because the powerful thing here, and this is what I share with my coworker, the powerful thing here is not that we chose God, but it's that God chose us. <laughs> we didn't choose this path. We didn't choose to be children of God. The scripture right here, what Paul is saying is before the foundation of the world. What he is saying is before God spoke and created the world, he already had this plan in mind to build a family of his people, to build sons and daughters here on the earth. This plan was before he even created light or separated light from darkness, before he spoke the world into existence. His plan was to have a family family, to have a community, to have people that lived for him and loved him. But again, the powerful thing is that he chose this way, not us. Look, who are we? Who are we? David says, who am, who, what is man that you are mindful of him? We're nothing in comparison to our heavenly father. We're nothing in comparison to the God who created everything by his spoken word. Yet he loves so deeply and he shows so much grace to us who are broken and sinful that he chooses us. My God, this is what gets me emotional because <laughs> I know what I was like. I know where I've been. I know the chains that were on my life. I know what my past was, yet God loved me so much that he reached out into the darkness and pulled me into his light, that he called me. And if he can call me, he can call every single one of you today. And he is calling you today. What great love. What great love. But this is all God's plan. Paul phrases it this way in a letter to Galatians. In Galatians chapter five, verse one, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You know, life in the world and life in sin is a life of slavery. It is a life of toil with no reward. It is a life of pain. Even living for God, we experience pain. We experience struggle. I don't wanna diminish that and I don't wanna give any false hope that you know if you just live for the Lord, everything's gonna be perfect, because it isn't. The difference between being a slave and being free is that one who is a slave has no reward and no hope. One who is free may endure struggle and pain, but has a reward of heaven. That's what sets us free from this world. The fact that when we live for God, when we become a son or a daughter of the most high king, doesn't matter what we go through here on this earth because when we die, we have the hope of eternity. We have the hope of glory to see our creator face to face, to be like him, to be with him in his unfettered presence. That's the difference between being a slave and being one who is free. But that also means that when we're set free here on this earth, 
We can be set free from chains that hold us back here. We can be set free from our past. We can be set free from sin and the weights that so easily beset us. That's what the word says. We can be set free from the worries of this life, the anxiety of this life, the depression in this life. We can be set free from all of that. Who wouldn't want a life like that? So Jesus literally sets us free. You remember a song we were just singing about? Chains fall, fear bow, here, now. Jesus, you take, you take everything. When Jesus sets us free, that's what happens in our life. When Jesus sets us free, we no longer have to go back to the things that hurt us or, or the pain or the struggle. We don't have to go back to past addictions. We don't have to go back to any of that because the chains are broken in the presence of God. And if he sets us free, you shall be free indeed. That's what the Bible says. And that's why Paul says, stand firm so that you don't go back into slavery. When you understand that God has set you free, no matter what the enemy speaks to you, you need to say, I am free and I'm a child of God. No, it doesn't matter if we start to remember the person we were. No, I am free and I am a child of God. That's what standing firm in that freedom looks like. So it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. The chains are broken in the house today. The chains are off your shoulders in the name of Jesus because that's the kind of freedom that our God gives us. That's what it means to be a child of God. So in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, Paul writes about adoption again in Romans 8, 15 through 17, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. As Paul continues to follow this thought of adoption, he says that we actually received the spirit of adoption, that there is a point in time where the spirit comes into our hearts. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are receiving the spirit of adoption. We receive a new identity. Again, I want to re reaffirm how beautiful it is that God wants to be our father. How beautiful it is that a perfect entity in the, that created the entire universe wants sinful people to be his children. He offers that invitation to all of humanity, arms open wide, nail scars in his hands and all, arms open wide, to adopt people into his family. In Acts chapter two, there was a, a very extreme event that happened. In Acts chapter 2, if you read verses 1 through 4, something happened to people. Up until this point, well, let me reassess for a second. Let me set our, our thinking, line it up for us before we get here. Up until this point, people have lived through the Old Testament. They were under the law. They had experienced God in that way. And then the Gospels happened. Jesus, being God in flesh, the Messiah to save all of humanity, walks the earth. And he's got a bunch of people that follow him, but the 12 disciples follow him. And Jesus is crucified, he's buried, and he's resurrected. And he appeared to people for how many days after he resurrected? Does anybody know? 
40 days. Tons of people saw him. Thomas felt the nail scars and put his hand in his side and and confessed, my Lord and my God. This had all happened. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And the picture there, like right before the book of Acts, you see the people that saw Jesus go up into heaven and they're just staring like, whoa, what just happened? And they're like stuck there for a minute. So much so an angel taps them on the shoulder and is like, why are you still here? What are you looking at? Go and wait for the promise. Go and wait to be endued with power from on high. You remember in the book of John, Jesus talked about the comforter, the comforter that would come after Jesus ascended. You remember that? So the angel is saying, go and wait for the promise. The thing Jesus said was gonna happen. So now you have Acts chapter two. And in Acts chapter two, there's a group of people, roughly 120 people hanging out in a room and they're waiting for that promise. But not just standing there sitting on the chair, right, Sister Rhonda? Not just sitting there waiting. Well, I wonder when God's gonna do this. No, they were praying. They were seeking the face of God. They were fasting. They were doing everything they knew to do to stay close to their creator. And what happened? In Acts chapter two, verses one through four, the building shakes. Acts chapter two, verses one through four, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place and suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. It filled the whole house where they were sitting and tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves and a tongue rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. So what did Paul say? You have received a spirit of adoption. That sounds a lot like being filled with the Holy Ghost to me. That sounds a lot like what happened in the book of Acts right here, that when you receive the Holy Spirit, like the book of Acts says, you are adopted into the family of God. Why? Because you receive a new identity in Jesus Christ. You receive power to live that identity in the name of Jesus. So being filled with the spirit is to be adopted into the family of God. Man. So Paul doesn't just stop there. He says this over and over again. You've received the spirit of adoption, reminding the people, because remember, when he's writing to Roman, to the Romans, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, these were people who had already received the spirit of God. These were people who were already baptized in the name of Jesus, and they were living a Christian life. So he reminds them, you have received the spirit of adoption. Never forget it. Walk in that freedom. Walk in that freedom. But he also uses a really interesting word, Abba. Abba, he uses an interesting word, Abba. Abba is is a really, really cool word. If you've been around me uh, for any period of time, you know I like words, especially words in the Bible that mean a little bit more than what we think they mean. I really, really like this word, Abba. You know, I was listening to a song by Eddie James called Abba. Has anybody ever heard that before? I'm not talking about the band Abba. I'm talking about the scripture Abba. But Eddie James has a song called Abba and it's beautiful. It's a love letter to a father and to our heavenly father. But I wanna share with you what that means. 
Because there's an implication here when we become sons and daughters of God. There's something special that happens and there's a new relationship that comes with that, our relationship with God. So in Romans 8.15, Paul says, we've already read this, I'm just gonna read it again for you just to realign our thinking. Paul says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. But then in Galatians chapter four, verse six, he says the exact same thing. Because you are sons and uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So this spirit that we receive creates a new relationship with God, a father-child relationship, Abba, Father. So the word Abba is actually an Aramaic word, and it does mean father. That's what it translates to. But it has two meanings that create the term father, two separate meanings, and we're gonna walk through these for just a second. The two sides to this word and it really reveals our relationship with God is intimacy and obedience. Intimacy and obedience. What this word and what Paul says shows us that you cannot have intimacy with God without obedience. And you won't be obedient to God without intimacy. These are so tied together in our relationship with God. To be a child of God means to be intimate with God but it also means to obey God. We're gonna start with intimacy first. We've already talked about how God chose this path. He's the one who desires intimacy with his people. He's the one who wants to be close to his people. James shows us this, and James chapter four, verse eight, says, come close to God and he will come close to you. God wants to be close to us. I'm so thankful that we, we don't have a God, and there are some theologies that believe this, but we don't have a God that just created the world and is now not involved in it. No, we have a God who created the world and now wants to be intimately involved in every one of his people's lives. He loves us way more than we could ever love him. He cares for us way more than we could ever care for one another. If you were here for children's church, they were spitting some truth today because they were talking about grace and how grace is God's gift to humanity. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do to buy it, but God gives it freely. That shows how much he loves his people and how he wants to be intimate with his people and close to his people, that he's willing to cover our sins with grace. But he loves us the way a father or a parent loves us. There's a reason why in the New Testament over and over again, he uses the term father to describe himself. There's a reason because he loves us and he nurtures us and cares for us the way a father cares for his children or the way a father should care for his children. Some of the most special moments that I've ever experienced with my kids, I got three of them now, so I have some experience. Some of the most intimate moments I've ever had with my kids I'm specifically thinking about Leo because he does this all the time. He'll just come up to me and just crawl up on my lap, not say a word, and just snuggle me. Those are some of the most special moments that I can think of between myself and my children. 
Because those moments are moments of intimacy and love. You don't have to say a word. You just enjoy being in each other's presence. And I could sit there. I could literally just hit the pause button on time and stay there forever. If I feel that way to my children, how much more do you think God feels to us? Some of them, and I can even say this, some of the most special moments I've ever had in my prayer times with God were not when I was asking him to heal something, not when I was asking him to provide, not when I was, even not when I was necessarily praising him or worshiping him. Some of the most special moments I've had with God are when I'm sitting there in utter silence enjoying the presence of God. That is intimacy. That is being with somebody. You don't have to say nothing. You just enjoy being in each other's presence. That's the kind of relationship God wants with every single one of us. And I hope that's the kind of relationship you want with your heavenly father. And that's what intimacy looks like. It's, God, I just can't wait to be in your presence. I don't have to say anything. You don't have to talk to me. You don't have to do anything. I just want to be there. So the other component of of Abba is obedience. Remember, I said you can't have intimacy without obedience. You can't have obedience without intimacy. These things are tied. They're linked together. But this idea of obedience, obedience is not a bad word. Obedience is not a bad word. Mark chapter 14, verse 36 says, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So you see how Paul uses the word Abba and then starts talking about an intimate relationship with God? Well, this right here is Jesus speaking, and he uses the word Abba. We all know this, that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, his flesh did not want to go through the cross. We know this. That, that's why he said this, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink of the suffering. But what did he say after that? Nevertheless, if you're reading in King James, I have that one memorized. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What is that? That's obedience. That's obedience to the plan. That's obedience to the father. That's obedience to what he came to do on this earth. But see, he uses the same word, the word that we've traditionally understood to be intimate, but also uses it in a form of obedience to to God, obedience to the cross, obedience to the plan to redeem humanity, even though his flesh, his body did not want to endure what was about to happen, yet he obeyed. So obedience is not a bad word. Submission is not a bad word. Because what does obedience do for us? When we obey the word of God and when we obey what God thinks is right or what what God, I shouldn't say thinks, but what God says is right, when we obey that, there's protection in obedience. (coughs) There's protection in obeying our father. There's, there are things you might not have to go through in this life if you choose to obey God. There are certain pains and hurts you might not have to endure if you choose to obey God. Paul wrote this in, in Romans 8.13. He says, for if you're living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
See, this again, he's illustrating the difference between a slave and a free person. A slave lives according to the flesh and dies with no reward, no benefit. But if you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, that sounds a lot like obedience to me. That sounds a lot like sacrifice to me. But if you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will have eternal life with your father. So we have to understand that obedience and intimacy are tied together so closely that we cannot have one without the other. And that's what our relationship looks like with God. It is one of obedience and one of intimacy. Romans chapter 12, verse one also says this, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we grow in our intimacy with God, as we go deeper with him, God starts to reveal to us through his word and through prayer time and connection with him what pleases him. And he, he will reveal to us what is right and wrong. And we have a decision to make in that moment. We have have to choose to obey, but obedience is a lot of sacrifice. Obedience is saying, I'm going to put my body, my flesh. That means your human nature. That means everything that makes you a human. So that's your thoughts, your plans, your desires, your temptations, the things that you want to do that are not godly as a sacrifice unto God. That's obedience. It's saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in my life. It's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, you know the plans that I have. You know the things I want to do, but I'm willing to sacrifice them at your feet on your altar in order to obey you and to grow in a relationship with you. That might sound like a tall order to a lot of people. It might. It might sound like a lot of sacrifice. Can I encourage you in this, though? A life lived to the fullest here on this earth is not worth and it's not compared to a life lived to the fullest in eternity. Can I tell you that everything this world has to offer, money, fame, whatever, all of that possessions does not even compare to what heaven will be like. Oh, I can't even go there. I ain't got time. Sorry. I'm sorry. But you know what? The last thing I want to share with you about a relationship with God. So, so we've talked about how it's a new identity. It's a new life. It's, it's God's plan to have a family. And when you get adopted into the family of God, you find community, you find belonging, you find mission, purpose, all of those things. We're driving to eternity when you're in the family of God. But there, something pastor said in group on Friday night really hit me different. When you look... At, at a life like that, you, you, everybody here has come from different places and, and maybe some of us have lived in the world for a while and found a relationship with God or came to a relationship with God. And some people might ask, well, what about those years? What about that time? What about my past? Like, what happens with all of that? This is what I want to close with. When you enter a relationship with God and when you're adopted into the family of God, one thing God does that absolutely blows my mind is that he restores even the lost years. That he makes something beautiful come out of even the most painful of circumstances in somebody's past. Acts chapter three, verse 19. This is where I'm gonna close. Let's all stand here. 
I'm going to wrap up here. I've been talking way too long, and I feel like the Spirit is moving. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, this is what it said. Therefore, repent and return. Sounds like obedience. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. That's your past. That's all the things holding you back. That's the chains. So repent and return so that that stuff can be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. Refreshing literally means, when you study out the Greek here, it literally means a recovery or, of breath or a revival. It can literally be translated to a revival. Do you know what a revival is? If you've been in church for a while, we talk about revivals and everybody hoops and hollers and fire from heaven comes down. But what does it really mean? We've heard the term revive, right? When are people revived? When they're dead. When the heart stops, when the beating stops, when you've flatlined. So we, we can understand our spiritual condition in that way. That when we repent and return to our Father, and if you were here for Children's Church, we talked about repentance. We talked about asking for forgiveness and turning away from that sinful life and turning to a relationship with Jesus. When we repent and return, God washes away the sins. He washes away the record, the, the, the chains, all of that. He washes it away so that your spirit and soul can be revived, so that your spirit can be brought back from the dead. Paul even says that he quickens our spirit because when we're living in this world, we're living in a world of death and decay spiritually. But when we come to a relationship with God, he adopts us out of that world that's empty and full of death and into a world that is full of life. And what that means for your past, that means that God can take even the things that died, even the things, the places that, that hurt and are painful, and he can revive them and make them into something absolutely beautiful. There is no wasted time with God. There is no wasted time with God. It doesn't matter how bad it was five years ago. There is no wasted time with God. Because what he does with that, he revives it and makes it a ministry so that we can minister to those who might be going through exactly what we went through. He turns it into a way that he can reach others through his children that have gone through that. Pastor mentioned on Friday night, there's a scripture in Joel. I didn't put it in my notes. I literally had it in my notes and erased it. And now I feel like I should have kept it there. But it was a prophecy that Joel spoke. I think it's Joel chapter two, verse 29. It's 29 and it goes down a couple verses. But it's a prophecy that God spoke over the children of Israel. And what he says in that prophecy is that he will restore everything, everything the canker worm ate. He'll make your barn so full, even though everything seems to be demolished and in shambles, God restores. God restores the things that we look at as waste. 
So be encouraged when you're in a relationship with God. There is no wasted time. There's revival. That's what happens. Revival in our heart, revival in our soul, in our mind, in our past, all of that. God breathes life into it. So as we wrap up, let's all close our eyes. We're just going to have a moment with God. I want to encourage everyone here that if this is your first time just hearing about Jesus or being in the presence of Jesus, if this is your first time, I want you to know that Jesus is knocking on your heart right now. Just like Revelation 3.20, he stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. What does he ask of us? Just open the door. God wants to adopt you into his family. And I want to encourage those who maybe have been been here a while. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. I want to remind you that your past does not matter anymore. That the chains that God broke years ago are still broken today. And as the people of God, we need to stand firm on that freedom. We need to remind the enemy. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we are free and that if God has made us free, we are free indeed. There is nothing that can change us or nothing that can change that if we're standing firm in that promise. So the last thing that I want to say is that this altar is open. What that means There's there's nothing magical about the altar. But what it represents is a step of faith. It's a representation for us that as we walk up to the altar in response to God's word, that we're saying, yes, I agree with this word, and God, I want you to do something in my life. If you feel called to do that, if you feel comfortable, I want to invite you to the front. Let's pray together as a family. Let's respond to the word of God in faith and respond in a way that just reminds us that we're walking out of our past and out of sin and into a new life with Jesus. In Jesus' name. child.
child of God.